Well, welcome to a brand new series that we are calling Friend of Sinners. Let me give you a little bit of a background as to why we're talking about this today and over the next few weeks. Currently right now in our lives in the United States, we are experiencing a, a season of, of tension. Uh, picture an elastic band that is being stretched and stretched and stretched and, and sometimes it feels to the extreme. I want to walk through why that is. Uh, the first is, of course, that we are in a series, uh, a season of political tension. Uh, the election's coming up, and any time that we're electing uh, the President of the United States of America, that's always a season of heightened tension. And it seems like everything that we talk about today is politicized. And that's normal for this election cycle. Anytime we elect a president, there's always heightened tension. But then add on top of that the civil unrest and the inequalities in this country that have come to light. Uh, questions of freedoms and opportunities and uh, questions of systemic racism and division between races is really coming to the front and becoming part of our conversation on a regular basis, leading to, to riots and disruptions and protests and walkouts, you name it. That has also heightened the tension of this season. And then just throw in the pandemic on top of that. You have uh, finances being disrupted. You have uh, civil opportunities uh, changing, work opportunities changing. You have school that's, should we reopen? Should we uh, send our kids to school? Should we uh, have them learn at home? What's it going to be like? How are you going to protect our kids? How are you going to protect our teachers? What's coming over the next few months? So when you add to the fact that we have a normally heightened tension, uh, heightened season of tension from politics, and then add on top of that the uh, civil unrest and the good questions that we're starting to wrestle with as a nation when it comes to racial equality and racial uh, uh, separations and opportunities, and then on top of that, everyone struggling with the pandemic and what's happening with their work, with their family, with schools, with kids, with finances, with, with all of life. How do we cope with all that? With the rise of tension, there's always a rise of how do we solve the tension. And sometimes those conversations can get pretty heated. What we've seen over the last few months is something that has existed in our culture for a long period of time, something called cancel culture that has really risen and become obvious and evident uh, in our culture and society today. What is cancel culture, you ask? Well, it's the idea of canceling someone out of your life if they don't agree with your decisions and choices and values and preferences about the culture in which you want to live. It's cancel culture. It simply means to uh, practice withdrawing support from those in the public after they say or do something that's considered offensive by any particular group. Uh, Ed Stetzer wrote in Christianity Today back in June of this year that cancel culture communicates, we won't take your support, we won't take your money, we won't take your ideas because you liked an idea that we find offensive. 
and we won't let you serve in our communities. We won't let you be a part of your communities, our communities because of your past decisions. Out with you. We're a very inclusive people. Now, the amazing thing about cancel culture is this. The one is that we know it doesn't accomplish anything. We know that cancel culture is simply a way to promote that this is how we feel about something and this is what should be done about something and so therefore just get out. Just stop. Just stop doing that. Cut them off. Get them out. Let's punish them in some way. Let's show how we're right and they're wrong by cutting them off from every area of life. But the other thing that's really insidious about cancel culture and what makes it very dangerous is that it's actually very easy to do. It's very easy for Christians to do. Now, we say we don't, but it is very easy to get rid of those, to marginalize, to push aside those that don't agree with our way of life, that don't agree with our uh, ideas, that don't agree with, well, really what we want to do as Christians. And so sometimes it seems easier to just push people away than it is to figure out a way to bridge the gap to them. And if you remember our series that we just concluded last week called Missing Church, one of the things we learned about God's church, His church, is that it's made up of His people, His body, His family. And as His body... No one has the right to say to someone else, because I'm an eye, and you're not an eye, you're an ear, if you follow that metaphor, then I don't need you. And so, it's because it's so easy to do that this is something that followers of Jesus need to fight against. They need to be constantly aware and pushing back against this desire of pushing people away from us, of cutting people off, of punishing them for believing something that we do not believe. That's the reason for this series. And our example is Jesus himself. Jesus was criticized for being around the wrong kind of people, for associating with the wrong kinds of people. People that others thought, religious rulers and others who really wanted to follow God, who really wanted to bring God to culture, said, you can't be around those people, Jesus. It's wrong for you. You need to cut them off. You need to make an example of them. You need to demonstrate to them that they're getting what they deserve. As a matter of fact, over five different times in the Gospels, over eight different passages in the Gospels, Jesus was accused of spending too much time with, of associating with sinners. Now, when we think of sinners, what do we think of? It's important to recognize that what they thought of back then, what the religious rulers thought of back then, when they thought of sinners, was that they were people who didn't follow God's law and who didn't make it a priority, who didn't make it an effort to live the way that they determined God wanted them to live. And they extended it even further. They would defile themselves if they associated with those people. Because if you are with them, you must be like them. You must be a supporter of them. And that sounds a lot like cancel culture to me. 
If someone is seen in a photo from 10 years ago with someone who today is in the news for sinful, wrong behavior that's, uh, that's culturally disapproved of or looked down on, then you by association are just like that person today who's in trouble because you're simply with them. And that was their thought process. These sinners don't follow the law of God the way we do. And because you're with them, you're like them. Therefore, you don't want to follow God at all. How could you associate with these people? Jesus. So Jesus got criticized for associating with the wrong people all the time. But for Jesus, it didn't matter that he was criticized. As a matter of fact, for Jesus, it was critical that he associate with the wrong kinds of people. And of course, as a follower of Jesus, we understand that the reason Jesus didn't associate with them was to be like them, was to become like them, was to become a sinner. Not that he, he winked at sin and laughed it off or that he ignored sin or its consequences and never taught against being righteous and pure. And it's not that he didn't, that he was saying that, hey, you can just enjoy some, some lighthearted fun and with those who are, who are practicing sinfulness. You know, just kind of ignore it and ha-ha, look at them go. Jesus had something else in mind. He had something else that motivated him to not worry about who he was associating with and the way that people would be critical of that. I'd love to show that to you. And why that should matter to us. Why we should do the same. I'd love to show you this morning why. Well, if Jesus was a friend of sinners, we should be too. And if you have a Bible, turn with me in them to Luke chapter 15. There's a very famous story of the parable of the lost son. The prodigal son. We read in verse 11 that Jesus continued, There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. And so he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. And so he got up and went to his father. This is such a powerful story that right off the top, Jesus says, do you know what this son has done? This son has done something reprehensible, something that no one in society would think of doing. He goes to his father and says, give me my inheritance early. Now, you know what has to happen for someone to get an inheritance. That's right. They have to die. Someone else has to die. 
And so what this son is doing is saying, what you have is more important to me than who you are. Your stuff is more important than your life. Give me your stuff. He wishes for his father to be dead so he can enjoy what the father already owns. And amazingly, the father gives him his side of the inheritance. There are some people who deserve, who do heinous things in society. This is one of them. This is one of those things. And this son, he wanders off. He goes to Vegas and he blows it all in wild living. He gets involved. He just he drinks it all away. He parties it all away. And then all of a sudden, it's all gone. And he has nothing. And then on top of that, a famine comes and he's not prepared for it because he's not saved anything and he has nothing. And he has to go and feed pigs, which is something that no respectful Jewish person would do. And yet here he is. And he doesn't even have the same full belly that the pigs do. The pigs get some food. He has none. And if you're reading this story, as you're listening to the story as Jesus told it, you're thinking, good, they deserve it. These guys deserve, this guy deserves what he's getting. The way he treated his father, he wished for him to be dead. Now he's getting his just desserts. Don't we love it when people receive justice? When people get their comeuppance? When people get their just desserts? When people are, are jerks and they cut us off on the highway and they zoom by us driving erratically and crazy and just full of speed as you're like, what, you cut me off, this is dangerous, how dare you? And then you drive by a little bit later and you see the flashing lights from the police car that's pulled them over. You see it's the same car, you think, yes, the police got him. That'll show you, you got what you deserve. And he's left with what he deserves, right? He's got nothing. The only plan he can think of is to throw himself on the mercy of his family. And he says, listen, I haven't acted like a son. I haven't acted like a, a human. <laughs> but if you could just welcome me back as a servant, just anything. I just need to survive. Anything I can do to be to survive. And the amazing thing is the father doesn't like that plan. But not for the reason that you and I would not like that plan. As a matter of fact, if someone came back to me after doing that to me, saying, I wish you were dead, then came asking me for a favor, I'd say, well, you got what you deserved. Look at you. I'd rub it in a little bit. I'd maybe, you know, pour some salt in that wound. I'd really make them feel that. And that's not what this father does. While he was still, while the son was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He is lost and now he is found. This is amazing. The father doesn't 
prove how right he was and how wrong the son was, he throws him a party. He says, it doesn't matter that you have done all of these things. It just matters that you're back. And he throws this extravagant party. Who does this? No one in their right mind does. <clears throat> See, <clears throat> when we look at this story, we, we look at it and think, well, of course, if my son was lost, if my daughter had wandered away and insulted me terribly but was now coming back and just wanted to make amends, wanted to make things right, of course I would welcome that opportunity. That's what good parents do. That's what good families do, we would hope, right? So let me tell this story to you in maybe a little bit of a different way. Imagine a married couple where the husband says, you know what? One woman's not enough for me. I need more. You're not enough to satisfy my needs, my wants, my desires. And so I'm leaving you. And the husband leaves his wife, they get divorced, and it's a, it's a horrific, emotional, heart-wrenching thing, but he wants what he wants, and so he goes off and he starts a number of different relationships with a number of different women. He's a, he's a serial dater, and he just is in it for the experience and for the moment. But you know that sometimes just living for the experience and the moment, well, it's a very lonely life. It's a devastating life with broken relationships, broken hearts, broken dreams, and <clears throat> broken commitments, broken finances. And the husband finds himself in a place where he realizes what he's done. And he decides, I need to start making things right with the people that I've wounded, starting with the people who have truly loved me. And so he contacts his ex-wife and says, I have done some horrific things to you. I am deeply sorry. I want to make things right. I want to make amends. I'd love to just have a cup of coffee to maybe connect, just to start to see if, if we could be friendly again, if we could be cordial. And the wife says, no. That's not good enough. I want more. Come home. Come back to me. Let's get married again. Let's rebuild our marriage. Let's rebuild our lives as husband and wife. Let's do that. That's what I want. I want you back. I want you close. If you're a friend of that woman, if you're a friend of that wife, and you hear that's her plan, you hear that's her offer, aren't you going to her and having some time with her and saying, girl, what is it you're doing? Are you nuts? Are you insane? But she says, that's what I want. That's what this father is doing to the son at this moment. Welcoming him back as if his past doesn't matter. It's offensive when people don't get what they deserve, right? It feels like that. It feels unfair. And as a matter of fact, that feeling of unfairness was felt by the older brother, who we read in verse 21 said that, um, or sorry, in verse 25, that uh, meanwhile the older son was in the field, meaning he's working, and when he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. And so he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. 
Well, your brother has come, he replied. And your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. And the older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never even gave me a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. In other words, isn't what he has done to what you have, to what you have worked hard for, all of your accomplishments, all of your possessions, are you saying that him just squandering it is for nothing? And the father says, my son, the father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. The older son says, I've worked for you hard. You've never honored me. This son of yours squandered everything you had, made choices that ended up in disaster for him, and rightly so. Good on him. Justice has been served. And you welcome him home? Why, is he, why isn't he getting what he deserves? We do that with God. The psalmist will cry out, why do the wicked experience blessing while the righteous suffer? We say that. God, why would you allow this to happen to me? We've said those kinds of things. And in the horrific moments, we say this. Why is the drunk driver alive while my child is not? That is not fair. And the father answered, I know, but you have something that he didn't have that's now changed. You still have my possessions, but you've always been with me. My son was not with me, and now he's close. And the father would say, he was dead, and now he's alive. He's living. He was the walking dead, and now he has life. And that's the amazing thing about the father is that it's not about fairness to him. It's about closeness. It's not about judgment, but about grace and restoration. You see, in the gospel, Jesus, Jesus' death and resurrection has already paid the punishment for our sin and for everyone's sin, regardless of the depth and the breadth of that sin. God has already dealt with our past. What he wants is proximity. It's not about being correct and saying, you got what you deserved, I'm right. It's not about being correct for God. It's about being close. He wants to be close to people, not to be correct. He wants to be close it's not about, let me prove to you that I was right, ha-ha, and you were wrong. You got what you deserved. Instead, for God, he says, I know you were dead, and you experienced that death. And now, welcome home. Welcome to life. 
Welcome to being close to me again. And so he invites, invites the older brother to come in. And we don't know whether the older brother did. Jesus doesn't say in this story. Because he's talking to those who questioned him at the beginning of the story in Luke chapter 15. We read in verse 1 that the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus, but the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. The Pharisees wanted Jesus to put them in their place. And Jesus wanted to know that their place was to know God's grace. That it wasn't about what they had done, their past, but about their proximity to God, that they could be close to God again, again if they came home. When people sin, we want them to get what they deserve. We want justice, especially when they hurt us. And the twist of that is that, of course, we say, I deserve grace, but you don't. I get it. Friends have lied to you. People have hurt you. Fellow employees, bosses have done things that have wounded you. Family members have caused enormous pain. Strangers have taken away the things that you love and you want them to get justice. I understand that. God understands that. But he says there's something better. He says it's not about what we deserve, but it's about what God wants to give We don't deserve to be close to God because of our own sin. He doesn't want to treat us in fairness. He wants to treat us with grace because he's less concerned about our past than he is about our proximity. The reason Jesus doesn't finish the story is because now you and I are faced with a choice. Will we celebrate the lost returning home, the dead finding life the ones who have totally wounded others even us will we welcome them home do i want to help people return home rather than prove that i was right well jesus tells us why he associates with sinners because he compares these sons especially the prodigal one with things of value He says in verse 3 of chapter 15 that Jesus told them this parable. Suppose one of you have a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. And then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. Or suppose a woman has 10 silver coins and loses one. Doesn't she light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost coin. In the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. 
When things are lost, you focus all of your energy, all of your focus on finding it because those things have value to you. And Jesus says, it's not what people do with their decisions that gives them value. People have value because of who they are. James would actually have to warn Christians in the book of James, where he says, don't show favoritism to others simply because they have possessions. And this was in a time of great need, of great famine. There would be a time when uh, there was a struggle about how people were going to eat and if a rich person wandered into the church they might say let's show this person special favor because they could be the solution to all of our problems and James said don't do that don't value people by what they have value people because they're people and if God values them and searches for them and longs for them to come home and looks for them to come home then followers of Jesus ought to do the same. That's why Jesus was a friend of sinners. Jesus was a friend of sinners by prioritizing being close over being correct. Let's do the same. And let's be friends of sinners like Jesus was. Even if people question that we might be hanging out with the wrong kind of people. A few questions for you as we close. You'll be able to discuss them around your table with your family or around your living room or perhaps in your growth group or Bible study this week. Question one. In what ways can we remind each other that all people have value, even ones who live sinfully? Question two. What are some ways that God's people can prioritize being a friend of sinners the way Jesus did. Being a friend of sinners means prioritizing being close over being correct. Let's pray together. Jesus, we thank you for the way that you didn't let our past determine whether we could be close to you or not. That your death and resurrection was sufficient to pay the penalty for our sins. And would you remind us that your death and resurrection is sufficient to pay the penalty for anyone's sin. And that your desire, Lord, is not to prove how right you are, but to draw people home to you. You want proximity. You want closeness. In the way that Jesus was a friend of sinners, even to the criticism of those who might say he should be doing something else, Lord, would you help us to remember and do the same, that people have value because of who they are, not because of what they do or what they've done. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.